God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the chance to, to open up your word and to not only read it, to be, but, but to be read by it. Uh, Holy Spirit, would you do this morning what I can't in my own power? Would you take and, and make the plain, clear meaning of what you have written explode in our hearts with all of the beauty as we connect it to the Lord Jesus Christ? God, for all of the things that we've done and maybe even have been done to us, we thank you that there is atonement. We thank you that there is cleansing. Would you help us to see it this morning? God, through me or in spite of me, but help us to see it. In Jesus' name, amen. Sin has a way of making us feel dirty, defiled, unclean. Have you ever done something and you know it's wrong and you know it's going to hurt someone that you care about very deeply? In that moment, how do you, how do you feel? Yucky? Ishy? Gross? Defiled? Like you can't believe that you just did that and you wonder if that person is ever going to forgive you and love you again. Maybe you gossiped about a friend not realizing they were standing right there and they heard every word. Maybe you had to confess to a spouse that you watched pornography this week. Maybe it wasn't even something that you did, but something that was done to you that left you feeling dirty, used, defiled. The reality is sin leaves in its wake a stain a sense of defileness or uncleanness. And so the question I just want to throw out to you is, what do we do with that? How can we scrub out a stain that is not in a shirt but seems to be on our soul? How can we escape the massive weight of shame and, and of self-loathing? Well, brothers and sisters, I have good news for you this morning. You can be made clean. Your soul can be purified. God knew this about people and their sin, and he gave them a whole bunch of different ceremonies and laws to maintain a sense of cleanness or purity before him. Remember how the book of Exodus last week ended? It ended with the people of God having built the tabernacle or the tent of meeting, just as God had instructed them to do. And, and then Moses goes up to go into it and to meet with God face to face, and, and he can't. He stopped. He's hindered. God speaks from the tent of meaning, but he is not able to get in. And so the book of Leviticus deals with the question, how can a sinful people live in the presence of a holy and perfect God? I got a brief intro video, and then we'll dive in. The book of Leviticus was written by Moses sometime between 1440 and 1400 B.C., while the Israelites were wandering in the desert. At first glance, it appears to be a dense collection of lists, rules, instructions, how-tos, and don't-dos. It is difficult for a modern reader to digest, but essential in seeing how an unholy people could face a holy God. After guiding the Israelites out of Egypt, God commands them to build a tent as his dwelling place among the people. Each fabric chosen and measurement was made purposeful in the center is the Holy of Holies, 
where the Ark of the Covenant rests. The Ark was a box to remind the Israelites of God's promise to bless them. Even with the proper space built, there is still a problem. Humanity's sin stands in contrast to God's holy and just nature. As a result, it is dangerous for impure people to be near God's holy, powerful presence. In response, God establishes patterns of sacrifice to purify the people. Above all is the Day of Atonement. Once a year, the high priest sacrifices a goat and casts a second goat into the wilderness, a symbol of God graciously covering over and removing Israel's sin. It is this regular removal of sin that points to the coming solution to humanity's sin once and for all. How many of you had a chance to read through the book of Leviticus this last week? Anybody? All 27 chapters? It's often the joke, it's where most Bible reading plans go to die. Because as you read through these lists of commands and regulations and purifications, like it is strange to the modern reader, isn't it? These elaborate sacrifices and these cleanliness laws. And so most of us, upon trying and just finding it so foreign, conclude that it's boring and irrelevant and for another time and another people. And yet I would argue that it is one of the most important books right now for for a couple reasons. First, is because it so clearly points ahead to the New Testament to Jesus Christ. And it helps us to understand exactly what Jesus is doing when he dies on the cross. Without Leviticus, we wouldn't understand very well what Jesus' death actually accomplished for us. Second, because we have a modern problem. It, we the book of Leviticus lays out a way for us to be forgiven and our sin atoned for. And our modern culture knows almost nothing of atonement and true reconciliation. We don't know how to restore people who have done very bad things or said very stupid things. Oh, we know how to cancel them or ostracize them, exiling them from public consciousness, treating them like they don't exist. But we don't know how to forgive them in a way that feels satisfying, where things could actually be restored. Because in many people's minds, to forgive them and move on means in some small way that their sin wasn't that big a deal. Or that they somehow paid for their crimes and we can move on. Sometimes, though, we just move on, treating it like it didn't actually happen. Because there's no way for justice to be served, and so we just move on and are kind of unsatisfied, but don't know what else to do. But the book of Leviticus pushes back on either no resolution or just treating it like, a, like no big deal. It pushes back on both idols of our culture, on the notion that sin is no big deal. The whole book is filled with blood and death. Like, you could never go through the ceremonies that are listed in chapters 1 to 7 and conclude at the end, sin isn't a big deal. If you had to slit the throat of a lamb or twist the neck of a bird, you could never come to the conclusion that not a big deal at all. Now, sin results in death, and bloodshed is the only way that forgiveness of sin is possible, according to the book of Leviticus. But on the other hand, with the shedding of blood, in some part, justice was served. Atonement is made, 
and at least in part are given a sense of satisfaction and justice, albeit an imperfect one. The book's structure is, 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 is actually helpful for us to understand, to kind of give us categories for what's being talked about. If you can remember three words with something in the middle, then you can kind of understand the structure of Leviticus. Rituals, priesthood, and purity. Let me show you. The book begins and ends with chapters devoted to religious rituals. In chapters 1 to 7, there are all kinds of different sacrifices or offerings one could offer. And in chapters 23 to 25, it details the different feasts and celebrations that were to mark the, the Israelite calendar. Each of the sacrifices in the first seven chapters offers and, and, and accomplishes a different thing, whether it's a burnt offering or a grain offering or a peace offering or a sin offering or a guilt offering, all teaching us something of the character of God. And then each of the festivals at the end point to something that they were, that we, they were to remember and that the Messiah was to fulfill in a greater way. The Passover, or the Feast of Firstfruits, or the Feast of Weeks, or the Feast of Trumpets, or the Day of Atonement, as we'll look at today, or even the Feast of Booths, all pointed ahead and pointed back so that they wouldn't forget. So if that brackets the whole book, the beginning and the end, then if you go like one step in on each side, the word priesthood. In chapters 8 to 10, it tells of the priesthood of Aaron and his sons, Nadab and Abihu, and how they died for approaching God in a way that he didn't prescribe for them. Chapters 21 and 22 tell us the, the qualifications of who can serve as priests before a holy God. And then in the middle are all kinds of purity laws. Chapters 11 to 15 details these purity laws that have to do with ceremonial purity or ritual cleanliness. What makes someone pure or ritually clean or what makes them unclean? And these have to do with skin diseases and bodily fluids and touching dead bodies and what kinds of food they can eat or, or not eat. And it's kind of gross. It's kind of odd. It seems rather trivial. Chapters 18 to 20 deal with moral purity, including laws about human sexuality, laws about the care for the poor and the marginalized, even an economic system, all told, was to be a system of justice and generosity among God's people as they would live distinctly different than the surrounding nations and show them what God is like. It closes, 26 and 27 are kind of a charge or a call to covenant faithfulness, to keep these things that God has laid out so that they could live with a holy God in their midst, even though they were sinful people. And in the middle of all of this structure, I think, is, is the day that really kind of infuses everything else with meaning, the Day of Atonement. Chapters 16 and 17 deal for us, what happens on Yom Kippur or the Day of Atonement? It is on this day, one time during the year, that the high priest of the people can go into the most holy place where God's tangible, visible presence dwelled. And on that day, he would make atonement for the sins of God's people. So why don't we look at Leviticus 16 together? It will read rather oddly, and yet it's incredibly beautiful. So, first six, uh, the first six verses. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they drew near before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron your brother not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark, so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. 
But in this way, Aaron shall come into the holy place with a bull from the herd for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen coat and shall have the linen undergarments on his body. And he shall tie the linen sash around his waist and wear the linen turban. These are the holy garments. He shall bathe his body in water and then put them on. And he shall take from the congregation of the people of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. Now, a couple things to note here. In the immediate context, we see that God has just killed Aaron's two sons named Nadab and Abihu because they didn't approach him rightly. They casually strolled into the presence of a holy God, and because of this, fire consumed them. You can read about that if you want in Leviticus 10. It's a great bedtime story for kids. Now, they were to remember that God is holy, and we do not approach him on our own terms. And so now, as they are instructed on how they are to approach God rightly, uh, they're all ears, right? Uh, I don't want to die. Aaron doesn't want to die. Let's do this the way that you've prescribed. And so God says, one man, the high priest, Aaron in this case, or whoever's serving as the high priest that year, would go into the holy, holy, holy of holies on that day and that day alone. That was the only time they were allowed to enter there. And there was a prescribed way in which they would do it. Typically, the high priest would look like the picture on your left as you look at it. It was a very elaborate and beautiful and almost royal garb that he would wear, very colorful in its threads, and it had a gold uh, breastplate on it. And this, essentially, it was really fancy. That's what he would wear most of the days, setting him apart as the high priest of God. But on the Day of Atonement, he would actually look a little different. He would look like the picture on the right. He would take off his ornate and ostentatious garb and put on ordinary white linen cloths, nothing to draw attention to himself, simple, humble. He would come before God as a man. And then the high priest would prepare himself. He would offer a sacrifice for his own sin. Verse 6 tells us that it would be a bull because he can't enter the presence of a holy God on behalf of the people if he himself is sinful, and so he would have to atone for his own sin. He would then bathe and then put on the outfit for the particular day and offer that sacrifice for his sins. And so after humbling himself and getting himself ready and, and, and offering atonement for himself, he would then intercede on behalf of the people. Verse 5 tells us that he would take two male goats from the people, and then we pick it up in, chapter, or in verse 7. Then he shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for Azazel. The word Azazel can be translated scapegoat. So if you've ever heard the term scapegoat, the one who takes the blame, that's where this comes from. Azazel, scapegoat. And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell to the Lord and use it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it, that it may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. 
Aaron shall present the bull as a sin offering for himself. He shall make atonement for himself and for his house. He shall kill the bull as a sin offering for himself. And he shall take a censer full of coals of fire from the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of sweet incense beaten small. And he shall bring it inside the veil and put, on, or put the incense of the fire before the Lord that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is over the testimony so that he does not die." And he shall take some of the blood from the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the front of the mercy seat and on the east side. And in front of the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the, bull of, uh, with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleannesses of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins. And so he shall, he shall do for the tent of meeting which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleannesses. No one may be in the tent of meeting from the time he enters to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out and has made atonement for himself and for his house and for all the assembly of Israel. Then he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it and shall take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar all around. And he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with, a finger, with his finger seven times and cleanse it and consecrate it from the uncleannesses of the people of Israel. Got it? So if that were to happen, you'd be like, awesome, I totally know what's going on here. Let me explain what is exactly taking place because it is incredibly foreign to us. There's a goat of sacrifice and the scapegoat. In many ways, this is a picture of God dealing with his people's sins in two different ways. The first goat, the goat of the sacrifice, is taken and it's killed. And its blood is sprinkled into the, or is taken into the most holy place and sprinkled on a place called the mercy seat by Aaron the high priest a place that is directly over the Ark of the Covenant, a, a hot spot of God's presence on earth, as it were. This mercy seat, or atonement cover, is another place, or another way that it's called or translated, is where God's justice and mercy were said to meet. God is receiving the sacrifice of the goat in the place of the people. And it was God's judgment, as it were, falling on their sin rather than on them. It was falling on the goat rather than on them. Thus, this place is called the mercy seat or the atonement cover. See, the people learned that it was through the shedding of blood that judgment falls and forgiveness is offered. Atonement is made. The goat that dies that has become the sacrifice is symbolically absorbing the wrath of God in their place. And then he's to take some of the blood of that bull and of the goat before and go and sprinkle it on the altar that's outside of the holy place where sacrifices are offered and made throughout the year, thus purifying it and making it holy and making it good for another year, so to speak. Now, all of this happens behind closed doors. The people see him go in, but they don't see any of this taking place. It's in verse 20 and 21 that the, the drama kind of picks up for the spectators. We read, And when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, 
he shall present the live goat. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. Now that would be entertaining to watch, wouldn't it? Because if you've ever been around goats, they probably don't stand very still or stand very quietly when a man puts his hands on them. Probably some bleeding and kicking and maybe they have to tie this goat up. But can you imagine what it would have been like for the high priest to begin confessing sins? Probably beginning with some very general sins that he's confessing and you're like, oh yeah, that sounds religious. And then all of a sudden as the confessions become more and more specific, you begin to wince a little bit and you're like, ooh, ooh, that's me. Ooh, I did that this year. Ah, that one was me too. But as he's confessing these sins and And as he does so with his hands put on the head of the goat, something incredibly significant is going on here. The sins of the people, as they're being confessed, are are being placed spiritually or symbolically on the head of the goat. And then what happens to that goat? It's led away from the camp. It walks until they can't see it anymore symbolic of their sin being removed, their uncleanness being taken away. Sometimes we need pictures of what God is doing for his people spiritually in in real flesh and blood. It helps us to understand. Any of you guys have a mind like that where you're like, I just need something tangible to help me get my mind around what's going on? The Day of Atonement was all about tangible. Blood was shed. A goat was led away. These rituals were showing them that sin was serious and that they needed their sin to be atoned for if they were to live and dwell in the presence of a holy God. In the same way, baptism and communion are in many ways for us exactly the kind of rituals that show us physically what God is doing spiritually when he saves us and when we're encouraged to remember the gospel. So what happens to the goat? Let's read in verse 22. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. Then Aaron shall come into the tent of meeting and shall take off the linen garments that he put on when he went into the holy place and shall leave them there. And he shall bathe his body in water in a holy place and put on his garments and come out and offer his burnt offerings and the burnt offering of the people and make atonement for himself and for the people. And the fat of the sin offering he shall burn on the altar. And he who lets the goat go to Azazel shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water. And afterward he may come into the camp. And the bull for the sin offering and the goat for the sin offering, whose blood was brought to make atonement in the holy place, shall be carried outside the camp. Their skin and their flesh and their dung shall be burned with fire. And he who burns them... shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water and afterward he may come that afterward he may come into the camp and it shall be a statute to you forever that in the 7th month on the 10th day of the month you shall afflict yourself and shall do no work either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you for on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest to you, and you shall afflict yourselves. It is a statute forever. Afflict yourself means to fast. 
And the priest who is anointed and consecrated as the priest in his father's place shall make atonement, wearing the holy linen garments. He shall make atonement for the holy sanctuary, and he shall make atonement for the tent of meeting and for the altar, and he shall make atonement for the priests and for all the people of the assembly. And this shall be a statute forever for you, that atonement may be made for the people of Israel once in the year because of all their sins. And Aaron did just as the Lord commanded Moses. So what happened to the scapegoat? It's removed from the people. It wanders away, taking their sin and their filth and their defilement with him. Imagine being there and seeing that as the goat begins to wander away further and further until he's just a small little speck on the horizon and then gone. What an encouragement to your soul that would be. Now, as beautiful as that imagery is, though, it's incomplete, Imagine if we had to still do this today, the blood, the gore, the sacrifices, the rituals, the food laws, the purification rites, the scapegoat leaving. I bet we wouldn't struggle very much to get our minds around the idea that God is a holy God. Why don't we do that anymore, Pastor Kyle? Why has the sacrificial system ended? I'll tell you why. Because everything in the book of Leviticus, everything about the Day of Atonement was meant to Bring us to Jesus. Let me show you. Jesus arrives on the scene 1,400 years later and fulfills all three roles we see in the Day of Atonement. Like the high priest who is going to intercede for the people, Jesus comes down from heaven, not in riches and in glory and in fancy dress, but as a child in a manger. The God of this world humbles himself and enters our brokenness. Isaiah 53 tells us, For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. The high priest comes and he comes in humility for the work that he's to do. Jesus prepares himself not by offering a sacrifice. He had no need. He was not a sinner. He prepares himself by fulfilling the perfect righteous requirements of the law, by living for 30 years in relative obscurity where no one but his father saw his faithfulness every single day. But then Jesus becomes more for us than just the high priest. He is also the sacrifice. He goes to the cross And as he hangs between heaven and earth on the cross, in so doing, he bears the wrath of God in our place. His blood is shed for the forgiveness of our sins. The cross then becomes God's ultimate mercy seat, where his wrath and his mercy meet, where his judgment and his forgiveness are released at the same time, where God is both just and justifier of the ungodly. Because he was a perfect sacrifice willingly given. And in doing this, in accomplishing atonement, he declares from the cross in, a, in his final words, it is finished. It is done. And it was. Our debt to sin was paid in full. That's why from this point forward, from the death of Jesus forward, there are no more sacrifices offered. We don't keep it going. Because the sacrifice that those pointed to had come. 
And not only that, but the, ref- the writers of the New Testament, in particular the writer of Hebrews, reflects on all of those sacrifices that have been given year after year after year. They were simply dress rehearsals, as it were. They were uh, moments that, that showed us and helped us understand the true sacrifice when he came. Romans, or, uh, Hebrews 10, let me read it for you. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats, sound familiar, to take away sins. The people of God offered these sacrifices year after year after year because in part they worked and in part they didn't work. Because how can the blood of bulls and goats take away the sins of humanity, of man? They can't. They were an insufficient sacrifice. A greater one was required. A greater one, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world provided. His name was Jesus. But so often we stop here and see Jesus only as the goat of sacrifice and forget all about the scapegoat of cleansing. See, the scapegoat, in conjunction with their laws of purity and cleanliness, is a beautiful reminder to you and I of our need for cleansing, for God to take the stain of our sin and our defilement and remove it from us. Yes, Jesus dies and is punished for your sins. He bears your penalty and pays your debt. But what about the sin that's been committed against you? The sin that, lets, that leaves you feeling dirty, defiled, broken, stained. What about those who have been sexually assaulted or abused as a child? Almost the immediate thing that happens when that happens to someone is they take a shower. Why? Because they feel gross. They feel violated. They feel defiled and stained. What about those who have been beat up and treated like garbage by those who should have loved you and protected you? What do we do with that lingering sense of defilement and shame and worthlessness and self-loathing? The good news of the gospel for you this morning is that Jesus takes it all. He takes it into himself and he brings it to the grave. Just as the sins of the people were placed on the head of the scapegoat and their defilement was removed from the camp, so Jesus becomes our perfect scapegoat, taking our sin and our shame, our defilement and our brokenness, and he washes us and makes us clean. Brothers and sisters, that is good news. That's good news that we must believe and live like it's true. See, many of us, upon hearing that atonement is provided for us in Jesus, say that we believe it, but then still live our lives and make our decisions as if we're worthless. 
as if we're defiled, as if we're unclean, as if nothing good should ever happen to us. Today, because of the work of Jesus Christ, you are invited to think differently about yourself. Not just because you're awesome, but because in every way he is awesome and you are in him. And what he did provides a more defining way to look at you than what you do. That's what it means to be in him. God made him who knew no sin to be sin, to take it upon himself. Why? So that in him, you might become the righteousness of God. You might be forgiven and washed and cleansed and given an entirely new identity based not on your performance but on the performance of a perfect one. If that's true, and it is for those in Christ, then some of you guys in this room need to start thinking differently about yourself. You see, something happened to you at some point in your life, and at that point in your life, you interpreted what it meant. Sometimes as a six-year-old, an eight-year-old, a 12-year-old. And then you've been living your life and making decisions in light of that interpretation. Now, I don't know what happened to you. I don't know. But I can give you an entirely different interpretation of who you are that if believed will lead you to making all kinds of different decisions based on who you now are. Brothers and sisters, I want you to live in that kind of freedom. Not defined by your past, not defined by what someone did to you, defined by who Jesus is and the victory he has won and the atonement he has made so that you can live as new people today. So that you can act differently Think differently. Expect to be treated differently as a son or a daughter of the king. In light of this, we worship him, knowing that our forgiveness was both costly but also freely given. That our cleansing was costly but freely given. The question remains, why would he do that? because he loves you and you need to know that he loves you and sin is a big deal and it, it cost God a lot it cost him his one and only son to deal with it decisively and finally but he did it so that we can live in newness of life and you thought Leviticus was going to be boring at the beginning of the book of Leviticus, God speaks to Moses and his people from the tent of meeting. They can't go in because of their sin and their defilement. At the end of the book, God speaks to Moses in the tent of meeting because atonement, at least in part, had been made. Next week, we're going to look at the book of Numbers as the people of God leave the base of Mount Sinai and begin traveling toward the promised land armed not only with God's commandments, but now a way to dwell and live with a holy God. 
The question then becomes, are they going to go in and become the people of God, shining as a light for the surrounding nations from the land that he gave them? I can't tell you that this week. You'll have to come back next week. Or you could read the book of Numbers this week or jump into a city group and see what ends up happening. Guys, the Old Testament is rich and it helps us to understand all that Jesus has done. But can I just tell you that today you can say, yeah, that's true, pastor. But live like it's not. Make decisions day in and day out like it's not true. Some of you guys have been doing that for years. Maybe today is the day that you drive a stake in the ground and say, no more. I'm going to actually believe that what Jesus said he did, he actually did. And I'm going to live and I'm going to make decisions from this day forward, not in light of my performance or what's happened to me, but in light of who he is, what he has done, and what he says is now true of me. Brothers and sisters, that could set you free. Let me pray. God, thank you for today. Thank you for the the powerful book of Leviticus to wash us, to cleanse us, to make atonement, and to set us free from the stain and the defilement of our sin. God, would you allow us to believe that, like really believe that in the core of our being so that we might be free of our shame free of our guilt and obeying out of a heart that wants nothing more than to love the one who has so loved us. God, you are good and you have done this for a sinful people that are not deserving but rejoice and gladly say amen, let it be. Lord, allow that truth to go deep into our hearts. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.